Hello and welcome to the Rejoicing Together podcast, a ministry of Maysville Baptist Church, where we share stories of God's transforming power as seen in the lives of our church members. Well, hello and welcome to the Rejoicing Together podcast. My name is Nate Trawick and I am joined today by Pastor Chris Porter. Chris, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, really excited uh, about today. Obviously, this week is the week of Easter. Uh, and uh, we just wanted to take an opportunity here and just walk through why Easter is worth rejoicing over. Um, when we think about Easter, we think about uh, obviously the resurrection of Jesus, we think about Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus. And today we just wanted to take a few minutes and dive into a little bit of the uh, theology behind Easter and talk about uh, what exactly is going on in Holy Week that makes it so special to us. Um, so with that, uh, one of the key doctrines uh, that we as Christians hold to is this idea of substitutionary atonement. Um, Chris, maybe just share, uh, maybe just give a definition for that, explain a little bit, help people understand what that is, what that is. So the term substitutionary atonement, there are some other synonyms that have been used. Penal substitution, uh, meaning penal means the penalty and substitute, meaning in the place of, um, speaking directly to the person and work of Jesus, uh, meaning that judicially, speaking of what happened, what happened with Jesus at the cross, the purpose behind it, that there was a judicial announcement made, a penalty that he took. He is tried by a Roman court, which is very interesting how God and his sovereignty worked that out. Um, the Romans, if known for anything worldwide um, and in history, has been their legal system. And as Pilate um, cast judgment that day on Jesus, it was as if though God was casting the judgment um, for sure, but um, it, for different reasons, of course. And interesting that the highest court in the land in that time found Jesus innocent but yet punished him anyways. Um, and so it, it has to do with a judicial view of the atonement. Not all people who talk about the atonement, which I think we'll dive a little bit more into that term, uh, believe that it was judicial in nature. Some think that um, what Jesus did on the cross was to appease the Jews. Some think that he was our example by dying for others. Some, uh, there's a ton of theories out there that are not the theory of atonement that we're espousing here. Penal substitution, that he took the penalty, um, for his people's sin, that he was their substitute. Um, another term that's been used is vicarious substitution or vicarious atonement, and that word just means, vicarious means to take the place of another. So you kind of get the term substitution in there. So that's a surface level go at it. Cool. So so maybe dive in. You mentioned wanting to dive in, maybe a little bit to atonement. Um, maybe give some of the biblical context to atonement. Um, just thinking about like, yeah, you know, Old Testament, you think about all the sacrifices, all that kind of stuff. Um, is that connected in any way to what we see in Jesus? For sure. I mean, I think I think that question, to ask that question in a way is to answer, because uh, you don't really have a definition for atonement outside of the Bible, really. And one of the main things I think we should do as students of the Bible is let the Bible define its own terms. And especially with we throw around redemption, uh, ransom, atonement, we should let the Bible define its own terms. And this is a term especially that God in His grace um, 
as he gave the law, which really was gracious in its context, because out of all the pagan nations in the world that worshiped God, there, there of course, there were law codes, but there was no sense of uh, amongst the nations that this is the word of the Lord, this is how God wants people to act. But when God gave his law, to the Jews, I mean, it was really gracious that he did so. Mm-hmm. And and teaching them, really, through the law, what atonement was, n- namely that their sins had to be atoned for. They had to be paid. There was a penalty that had to be paid. So it goes back to that idea and just see through the law, all the different sacrifices. All of those were teaching um, God's people that sin had to be atoned for. He taught it through the law, but, of course, you know, he taught it even in the garden, right, as Adam and Eve sinned. As um, God apparently kills an animal and covers their nakedness, um, they they were clothed. Remember, they tried to close themselves with uh, leaves and that kind of thing. But God clothed them, covered their sin with um, with animal skin, and so an animal had to die. So even there in the garden, God is God is showing us what atonement is, and so and when you just see that scarlet thread all throughout Scripture, that yeah. what Hebrew the writer of Hebrews say, without the shedding of blood. There's no remission, or you could say atonement for sin. Cool, cool. Yep. So we have this idea of sin popping up a lot. Um, maybe thing be helpful to talk about um, what exactly is that sin? Because there's, there, I mean, you mentioned there's a lot of different ideas about atonement. <clears throat> Certainly, there's even probably more ideas about what sin is in today's world, um, and maybe even a lot of um, vagueness or. Uh, wrong thoughts about what sin is. Mm. Um, so maybe just give briefly to kind of set the stage here for, for what we're talking about. What is sin? Um, why is this sin so bad? Why does it require atonement? Yeah, so uh, first of all, what is sin and then why is it so bad? What sin is, you know, one of the terms the Bible throws around for sin synonymously is transgressions. So that term means to step over the law, to break the law of God. So you have the law of God, which God made evident in the garden with Adam and Eve. Do not eat of the tree, right? Do not eat of this tree. You can eat all the rest of it, but do not eat of this tree. Um, So they broke the law. And then, you know, Paul goes on in Romans in the New Testament to describe that um, that the Jews had the law of God. They knew the Ten Commandments. They had all the law of God. So they were given the law of God. But even the Gentiles who did not have the law of God, they had, were a law unto themselves. That um, the law, the right and wrong, is placed into mankind. God, as human beings, we we know what is right and wrong. So God has even, in a way, given us a law in our conscience. And so we are made in his image in the fact that we know there's a right and wrong. We know what it is. C.S. Lewis did an amazing uh, thing in, I believe, Mere Christianity where he talks about um, the major people groups throughout the world history have always had some very similar right and wrongs, murder, theft, lying. All those have always been wrong in every culture for all time. Mm-hmm. And that, that only you know points to a moral law giver. So that I think that's what sin is and it is somewhat that simple transgressing the law of God, but that's also what makes it so bad is that it is God's law and it's God who we is his law that we've sinned and therefore the sin is against God. Mm-hmm. And you know David when in Psalms 51 David commits um, murder, he has Uriah killed, he commits adultery, but 
Um, who does he say that he sinned against in Psalms 51? You and you alone, God, have I sinned. Meaning that he broke God's law. And so that's what made it so bad was that he had broke God's law. So that's what sin is, and it makes it so bad because God is such a good God, mm. and he's such a great God, and he's such a holy God. Yeah. He had given Adam and Eve so much, uh, mostly in the greatest gift he'd given them himself, his fellowship. And the same with all of humanity. He has given us so much, and he's been so good to us. And to spurn him, to rebel against his goodness, right, is what makes sin so bad. Um, so I think I think that's a good working idea of what sin is, and, and um, so much of modern church talk and um, is overcome with psychology, and it has no and sin is is no longer talked much about that sin is against God and His law, and therefore salvation isn't being made right with God and His law, mm-hmm. right? It's not. It's therefore the atonement of Christ is not important in many churches because sin is not rightly defined. It's just very simply laid out in Scripture for us. Yeah, that's good. I, th- I think a good um, illustration that I've heard before talking about sin um, and, and the importance of it, I, I think it's Ray Comfort, um, or maybe it's Todd Real. One of those two gives the illustration uh, when talking about the seriousness of sin. Uh, like if you were to uh, lie to your wife, the consequence might be you know you have to sleep on the couch. Um, that's the extent of the authority there. <laughs> you know, I guess it depends on your wife. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if, if you lie to your coworker, maybe you get reported to HR. Um, if you lie to your boss, maybe you get reprimanded. Maybe you get fired. If you lie to the IRS, maybe you go to jail. Mm. If you lie to the president, maybe you get charged with treason. But if you lie to a holy God, or if you break God's law, um, that's why the the punishment has to be so severe because you see throughout um, all of all of life you see as the level of um, authority increases so does the uh, reach of the consequence um, and so it just makes sense it's a simple way of explaining it um, made a lot of sense to me but anyway oh that's um, good um, so as we we think about atonement as we think about um, this sacrifice that Jesus made. Um, I want to think about three specific areas um, as we think about that. Um, and, and the first one that, that we have written down here is Jesus's humanity. Why, when we think about Jesus, um, the man, why could God not have just fixed this problem on his own? Why did Jesus have to be human? That's an interesting question, right? Because in in one aspect, um, he could have fixed it on his own. Um, the atonement was not necessary. In one aspect, God could have judged the world in his justice and his wrath, and Jesus could have not come, um, and that would have been justice. It would not have been wrong. It would not have been unfair. It would mm-hmm. just have been justice. So in one aspect, the atonement is not necessary, but... Because God has chosen to love humanity, and He has freely chosen um, to redeem humanity, uh, a remnant of people for Himself, because He has chose that to to do that. And uh, the Bible tells us, before the world was created, Christ was slain for the foundation of the world. So, because God in Ephesians one, according to His good will, decided 
to do this. Um, therefore, the atonement was necessary because he chose for it to be necessary because he wants to redeem his people. And so, um, so the, and, and there you have, uh, but why did he have to become human? Okay, so um, I, I, it goes to that what had to happen because Adam was a man, okay, and we have that language laid out in Romans 4 and Romans 5 uh, and, and through Romans 8. Since Adam was a man who lost um, the right standing with God, the um, state of innocence was lost by a man. Um, innocence or the fellowship with God could only be regained by a man. So it had to be a man. Adam was a man who was given a law. He was under a law because God gave him a law, and he broke that law. And therefore, death came through one man, through one man's sin, Romans 5.12, and death and sin to all the world. So Jesus had to be born of a man because he had to be under the law. Which a lot of people, I think, they miss Philippians chapter 2 when they when it says that um, Paul says in around verse 6 or 7 there, um, the kenosis passage, where it says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, um, though was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. A lot of debate has went over, as we've talked before, about what did that mean that he emptied himself? Well, I think the awe and what Paul's getting at there is that the one who created the law, right? Jesus is the lawgiver, right? Um, Jesus is is was God and in his pre-incarnate state. Um, he was John one three. All things were created through him and by him. Paul says in Colossians, all things were made for him. So he is the agent of creation. He is God of very God. That's his pre-incarnate state. But he becomes man. He was a lawgiver beforehand. So when, at the virgin birth, he is born, uh, his deity puts on humanity. He doesn't lay aside his divinity, but what he does is he lays aside the majesty of his divinity, the majesty, the him being the lawgiver, and then he becomes under the law. And so he had to live for him to redeem a people, for him to become the atonement. Because in the Old Testament, over and over again, the point is made, the sacrifice for sins must be an animal, this animal, or um, these sacrifices have to be without spot or blemish. They have to be, from the outside, perfect, right? Um, even in Exodus, right, God tells uh, the first Passover there in Egypt that um, tells his people under Pharaoh's bondage that they have the sheep that they are going to put on the doorpost. Those sheep have to be without spot and blemish. And that was true for all the sacrifices through the Day of Atonement and every other day in the temple for thousands of years for the Jewish people. And all that was pointing to Jesus, right? That um, So Jesus had to be born a man because a man lost um, fellowship with God. And therefore, a man had to gain it back. And he had to, he had to be perfect. Um, and he had, therefore, to be under the law and obey the law perfectly. So uh, just an amazing thing to think about. The lawgiver is the one who became under the law, and he accomplished salvation in one way by his obedience. Theologians call that his active obedience. Um, and so, yeah, that I think that close to what you're getting at, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, thinking about 
Um, obviously, for people who are listening, passages to consider there, I think Romans 5. It's a great starting point, Romans 4 and 5 there. Um, they want to go dive into that a little bit more. Um, but also, you mentioned a lot there about Jesus' divinity. Um, you know, we throw around the term a lot about Jesus being the God-man. Um, we oftentimes say he's fully God and fully man. Um, I know there's some objections to maybe that statement. Um, but uh, why is it so important that Jesus was also divine? Why did he have to be divine for this substitutionary atonement to take place? Yeah, I think a couple things come to mind for me, Nate, here. Um, so just a great resource I would I would encourage. It was a, a work that is not very long. It's in two parts. It was written in the 10th century by St. Anselm. Um, it's called Corpus Deum, uh, Why the God-Man. It's a great little read. I would highly recommend it. And even in the medieval ages, there, he's 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 working through this and working through the atonement. It's amazing how most time we think in the Middle Ages they missed the gospel, and not until the Reformation until <laughs> we had the gospel. And there is some truth in that, I think, in church history. But there was a lot of people that did have the gospel, and the gospel has never really went away. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, God has been faithful to persevere His word and preserve his word, excuse me. And uh, and Sam definitely had this theory of atonement that we're talking about in the 10th century, um, as did the apostles in the first, second century Christians do it as well. So, um, but he he had to be divine in, I think, biblically speaking, for a couple of reasons. One, it all the way throughout the Old Testament, it's God who is the author of salvation. It's God who saves, right? It's God who brings his people out of Egypt. It's God who clothed Adam and Eve. It was God who brought his people into the promised land. It was God who guided them. It's always God who saves. So therefore, it had to be God who saved ultimately, which was here. Um, So there, but um, economically, I guess you could say, thinking about the gospel, um, every man born after Adam was born not in a state of innocence, but in a state of guilty. Just me and you, Nate, we were born, our children were born at guilty, as sinners, born condemned. Uh, Ephesians 2 is very clear about that. Children of wrath. Not only are we born condemned, but we're even condemned even the more because we willfully, as Paul goes on to say, Ephesians 2, walk in darkness. Mm. And then Jesus says, you hate the light because of your sin and your shame, therefore you love the darkness. So that's the state we're born in. So we are doubly condemned in that sense. Um, so if Jesus was just any born like any other man, he would have born been born in a state of guilty before the judge, right? Like, like we were and our children and all the way back to Adam. So it's important that the virgin birth, Christmas, what we celebrate, is as important to Easter as it is on Christmas Day. So the incarnation is important. Um, that he, because if he's not divine, then he's not, um, he's not sinless. He is in fact sinful. So there you have that. Um, something else for him to be divine uh, is important also because of what happens on the cross. Um, surely one thing I don't think about too much as you read through the Gospels that sometimes eclipses my mind is that Jesus, he suffered throughout his whole life, not just at the cross, right? Uh, he knew what was coming. I mean, it's very evident mm. all throughout his... I mean, how many times does he tell his disciples? I mean, I think we have recorded one Gospel in Mark five or six times where he says, I will be delivered into the hands of the Romans. They will beat me. They will scourge me. I'm going to be crucified. 
It's coming. <laughs> he knows that. But he knows not only, and that's not the worst part of what happens on the cross. It's what spiritually, and what happens in his soul, in his humanity, and it's, it's what happens when he drinks the cup of God's wrath. And that consciousness that he had, oneness with the Father and with his love, that that was broken. Oh, Father, why have you forsaken me, right? In his humanity, the wrath, he feels the wrath of God, I think, there more than he feels the love of God there. And, and who he was in his divinity. So he feels so in that moment, so that's the worst part. And so what happened though on the cross? And and here's the question. I think it's a great question. How can Jesus, in a finite period of time, hung on a cross for six hours, right? Um, how can in a finite period of time, how can he take the eternal, infinite wrath of God that his people deserve? Right, every mm-hmm. sinner who has sinned against God, and if you want to, we were talking about the seriousness of sin. If you want to know how serious uh, God is about sin, you have to look at what it took for sin to be paid for, mm-hmm. right? For um, someone to take the penalty of that sin, which is what we have at the cross, mm-hmm. right? And so there, Jesus, a man, took the eternal, infinite wrath of God in a finite moment in history, six hours, however you want to say it, right? Um, however long that was. How is that possible? The only way that's possible is that he is the infinite God there on the cross. Um, so wonder of all wonders. So you got to have a God man. Can't just have a man. You can't just have God. It had to be a God man. And yeah. thank God that's what we have in Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. So we... I know one question I had growing up in church, and I'm sure maybe other people have had the same question too. Um, uh, you know, you, you think about Good Friday, the crucifixion, um, and I think we, we spend a lot of time in church talking about the crucifixion, and rightfully so. Um, that is, as you've mentioned, where that transaction took place, where Jesus bore the wrath of God, where he took that. But then as you move to Easter... Um, we celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive, and we're all excited about that. And um, I think there's some, some understanding there, uh, certainly. You know, obviously we serve a risen Savior. I thought that's an important thing, um, especially for the church. Um, you know, if we serve a dead Savior, then that's problematic. But maybe just talk about for a little bit why the resurrection is so important when it comes to this atonement that we've been talking about. Mm. So um, I think of a couple things that comes to to my mind about why the resurrection, uh, economically again speaking about the I guess logistics of our atonement, um, and one is if Jesus was sinless, right, and he died, which we believe he did, then death had no bound on him. If Jesus stays dead, it it proves that he right he was a sinner like the rest of us. But not just that he rose from the dead, because other people rose from the dead, Lazarus rose from the dead. But the way, and we get in that if you want to, the way that he rose from the dead, his he is the first fruits of all creation. Speaking directly of his of his resurrection, that's different than the way Lazarus. Uh, rose from the dead. Something is much different about the yep. resurrection of Jesus than that of Lazarus. Okay, um, and so that had to um, happen, and almost to prove God vindicated His Son by saying, "This 
uh, sacrifice is accepted. He was the sin. He was my sinless son, and I raised him from the dead uh, to prove that his sacrifice. So it almost it almost proves the atonement, right mm-hmm. for us. Um, and Paul Paul has an interesting also in that vein line in Romans chapter four, verse twenty five, where he says he was delivered up for our offenses. He died for our forgiveness, but he was raised for our justification. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about. What happens in the resurrection, uh, not just the history of it, but the faith of it. So do we believe it was a historical account? Yes. Um, Orthodox Christianity believes that Jesus historically, in real life and real time, rose from the dead. And in, in the faith aspect is that he, he accomplished salvation. And, and, I, and there's a sense that what happens after Easter, in the coming days, as he makes himself known, he ascends into the heavenlies. Uh, Hebrews says, Hebrews 9 and 10, he goes into the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple. And that's where we worship, right? When we come to worship, you hear a lot of people in today's time, may the Spirit, you know, may the God's presence come down. Well, in a real sense, what biblical worship is, is looking up to the temple, looking up to the true temple, looking up to where our Savior is alive, and He is really there, and He is seated at the right hand. Our sat, he's our mediator, He's our propitiation. He is alive at the moment, right here and now. And if He was dead, so would our salvation be. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ be not raised from the dead, my preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. So we do have a living faith because he is alive. Mm-hmm. And we can believe in our that we are justified, that we have his righteousness, his obedience is um, benefited to us, credited to our account as followers, as his people, as his bride, because he ever lives to prove it. Mm-hmm. And he's alive right now at the right hand. Yeah. So that some of the thoughts come to mind. So, so you mentioned how Jesus' resurrection was different from Lazarus. Um, how, how so? We can dive into that a little bit. Yeah, so... <clears throat> I think it's a great question. Um, I think it's one I, I, in the past, haven't thought much about. I've always kind of wondered a little bit about this, right? Because Paul, how many times does he say in other writers in the New Testament, Peter, that Jesus is the first fruit of all creation, speaking of his resurrection? Uh, well, yeah, but other people were raised from the dead, right? Weren't there people in the gospel accounts that when Jesus come to life, like other people come to life too, tombs? Like, well, there's other people raised from the dead. Lazarus, you know, what about the... Um, Jesus going through what town? The town of uh, Nun, maybe in the Gospels, and uh, maybe got the town wrong. But um, he's going through, and a, a widow, his her only son has died. You know, and they're having the funeral, and he raised that guy back to life. Uh, you know, anybody could ruin a funeral. I guess it'd be <laughs> Jesus, right? And so, people have been resurrected before. Jesus, the one who performed those miracles. So, but how is he the first? What's different about him? Well, um, and, and I think we see in the accounts uh, when his followers interact with the risen Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, first in theirs, he appears to the apostles in the upper room or wherever they're at. Um, there is continuity mm-hmm. with his earthly body, I mean, his body pre-crucifixion because uh, he has scars. You remember, Thomas, touch my hand, touch my side. Um, he says, give me something to eat. So he eats. They know him. He knows them. Um, so they recognize him, but there's also some discontinuity between his resurrected body. Um, he appears in a room, seems to be, and I don't understand this. I don't think we can know this fully. 
there's another dimension of this body, right, that he has. And w- what I'm getting at is his resurrection was the first fruit because his, his, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he had in his res- and what he has till this day in his resurrected body is an eternal body, mm. right? Lazarus was going to die again. His body was going to ca- decay again. Um, that son that he raised at that funeral was going to die again physically. But the resurrection body of Jesus was eternal, right? Mm-hmm. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Like one day we will put on our incorruptible bodies. You know, one day this this flesh will be will put on incorruptible. And so um, that's what Jesus' resurrection body was. And, and that's what I think John is getting at when he says in John chapter 3, verse 1, I don't know what we're going to be like. Now remember, John's <laughs> seen him that day. You know, John John was there on numerous occasions, saw the resurrected body of Christ. I don't know what we're going to be like, <laughs> but I know we're going to be like him. Yeah. I don't know all what that body was. I no. don't know. I've seen it many times. I talked with Jesus, and I knew him, and he knew me, and I was his beloved. Mm. But I don't, I don't know what we're going to be like. And that's mm. the Christian hope, right? Mm. That's the Christian faith. that, and it, and it goes back to the atonement, that what Jesus accomplished— for his people was so great and so perfect that uh, not only are we the righteousness of Jesus and not only are sins forgiven and we are adopted children of God, but uh, Paul goes on to say we're co-heirs with him hmm. and we're going to be eternal beings. And that and that is not floaty angel things in the sky, whatever <laughs> that is playing a harp. One, I'm scared to play music in front of people. <laughs> and two, I'm really scared of heights. So if that's what heaven's like, I'm scared to death of it. <laughs> but that's not the Christian hope at all. Yeah. The, the Christian hope is that we will be like Christ with resurrected bodies, um, fully regenerated souls mm. and hearts. Um, in, in a lot of ways, what has begun happening in the born-again Christian will one day come to maturity in the resurrection of his people on that day, and we will be eternal in his presence with a body that is like Christ. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So so maybe just, I guess, in closing, think about um, how does this, all this that we've talked about, how, do, how should this inform our worship? Hmm. How does it inform how we live our lives, how should it change the way that we see ourselves, see God um, going forward as Christians? So for me, I think there's a lot of implications of Easter. Just thinking on it since we talked about having this podcast as I've thought through some of it. It should affect um, our prayer life, right? Um, And I don't don't know about some, but sometimes I can feel like in my prayers I'm praying to somebody who lived 2,000 years ago. You know, that existed at some point. But that's not what prayer is. It's not biblical prayer. We get to pray to a God who's alive, God the Father, and God the Son who is alive, mm. who conquered the grave, who is right now at the right hand of the Father. We should talk to him like a person because he is and he's alive. And so that should change the way we pray. Um, that we worship, you know, our worship is not a memorial funeral service. Mm. Right? We're taking communion Sunday. It's not like Sunday in communion, uh, we're not... Um, having we're not taking the bread and the wine, the juice. We're not taking those things just in remembrance of what happened back then. In a sense, we are, but it's not like a funeral service. He, we believe, through the Holy Spirit, is going to be there with us, communing that He did what He did on the cross. He spilt His blood. Um, he, he he bled. He was crushed. He um, 
everything that happened on the cross, he gave his body for us so that we could commune with him, mm. so that we could be with him. And in a sense, we believe we have that right now as Christians through the Holy Spirit of God. Not face-to-face. That's what our hope is, though. That's what we look forward to one day. Um, so we have, a, we have a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not something that just was, but something that very much is real right now. should affect our evangelism. You know, we should share the gospel and seek to do so on the basis um, that Jesus will save. He will actively, in his person, save those who come to him. He will save them and right now. And not like, and, and in, one, in one essence, he did save his people through the cross and the resurrection. Right? He said, it is finished. He accomplished it. But even to this day, he regenerates them. He he is he will save, and he will not cast out any of those who come to him hmm. right now. That's good. So there's a real there's an, a present moment about the Christian faith because of the resurrection of Christ. Hmm. When we gather to worship. We we are singing in some ways a lot. You know. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's good. Well, Chris, thank you, man, for all your time. Appreciate your thoughts. Uh, any final thoughts here as we close? You, you know, I, I think. My prayer is that we would think hard and think well and think and let the Bible inform our thoughts on these things. Um, we have not yet scratched the surface of these things, you know, even in this conversation, um, in all of our study separately, in all of our study together. Um, there's so much to dig upon. And uh, we have a real, it's just our nature. Things that are common can be misunderstood. Uh, and I, my prayer is that as members of Maisel Baptist Church, the death and resurrection of Christ would not be common in that sense, mm. um, that we would not misunderstand it just because it's common. But we would all seek as pastors and leaders and members, no matter what age, we would seek to know know more about it and more about him. And, and that will only lead to more worship, more outreach, um, more faithfulness if we will just turn our hearts and minds and souls into wanting to know more of him, which is what Paul prayed, right? That you would know him more. Hmm. So that's my prayer. Well, again, thanks, Chris, for coming on. Uh, Happy Easter to all of you listening. Hope you guys have a phenomenal week uh, thinking about uh, the resurrection of our Savior. I hope that uh, this conversation as you uh, move towards Sunday will just really challenge you to come to church Sunday and Sundays in the future. Uh, worshiping a risen Savior uh, with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Hope you have a great week, and we hope to have you back next week. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. The Rejoicing Together podcast is a ministry of Maysville Baptist Church. We hope and pray that this episode has encouraged and will challenge you to grow in your faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you would like more information about the church, our other ministries, or information about how to support those ministries, please visit maysvillebaptist.net. If you have a question about the podcast or would like to speak with a pastor, please contact the church. Again, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a blessed day.